Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back in a place where you feel at home. I was thinking this week, you know, I, I, since I retired, I've been in 10 different interims, uh, lasting anywhere from uh, 10 weeks to two and a half years when I was over at Orville. And of all those 10 interims, you're the only church that ever invites me back. I don't know what... <laughs> I don't know what that's saying about you or whatever or the other churches where I've been, but it's always glad to be, always happy to be back in a place where you do feel like you're at home. And I appreciate that every time you have a chance to come back here to Willard. The Apostle Paul, as you know, spent his lifetime after he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He spent his time going around the then known world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, discipling those that he could appointing people to, to, to carry on the work that he had started. And, and the Apostle Paul spent much of his time in his writing combating issues that arose in those churches that were trying, things that were trying to destroy the churches. One of those things was uh, a group of folks out of Jerusalem and other places that were called the Judaizers. They came to try to tell people that it wasn't enough to, to experience the cross of Jesus Christ and grace, but they needed also to add all kind of legalistic stuff. And all the stuff that they were adding were, were taking them away from the central theme of what Paul was preaching, and that was the cross of Christ and what the cross really meant. In, in our day, there are all kinds of things that go around that would draw us away from and, and divert our attention from what is, I think, central, and that is living the cross-centered life. I want to talk about that this morning. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians was that, that, that particular book that was written basically, basically to combat that whole idea of living according to rules and regulations. And Paul tried to center the Galatians as he tries to center us on the cross. Galatians chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 11, we, we read these words. <clears throat> when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Great Barnabas, the man who was the great soul, was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you, you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith. In, Jesus, in Christ, and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. 
If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And here's the verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A man by the name of Dr. Prince Harris told the story about a very poor family that lived in Floyd County, Georgia. Now, it was a very large family. There were nine children in the family. There was mom and dad in the family and grandpa, who was getting up in years. So it was a family of 12. And, and things weren't really, really tight in that family. So when one winter's evening, when they sat down to eat, they, they sat down to a meal of pork chops. Now, each per- person in that family had one pork chop on his or her plate, And after the 12 chops had been distributed, there was one left over remaining in the platter in the middle of the table. Well, following the blessing, everybody started eating as fast as he or she could, anticipating that they would be the one who would get the leftover pork chop. Well, the lights in the house that were never very predictable, the lights went off just about the moment they were all finishing up their pork chop. And when the lights went off, a cry was heard in the room. And in a few moments, the lights came back on. And when the lights came back on, it revealed a sight no one could forget. Dr. Harris said, it showed Grandpa with his hand over the remaining pork chop, sort of possessively, and 11 forks stuck in the back of his hand. (laughs) Now, Dr. Harris said... If you don't want to go through your whole life sticking forks in the backs of people's hands, you'd better do something about your self-centeredness. Your self-centeredness. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us what he did about his self-centeredness. And he gives a frank admission in the marvelous scripture that we read this morning about what happened in his life that so transformed him completely, so completely that he could boldly say, I have been crucified with Christ, I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I mean, the Apostle Paul cut through all the peripheral things here and goes straight to the heart of the matter in the passage from Galatians chapter 2. I don't know this morning how many of us have ever been to an archaeological dig. When we were in Israel back in 1999, it seemed like the whole country of Israel was going through some kind of dig somewhere in the country. Now, when they go out to do an archaeological dig, what they do is they, they go to a place that's going to be excavated, and they make a slice in the earth like a giant slice of pie. And then they start on the surface, and they go all the way down as they go down there until they reach some earlier civilization under all that dirt. 
You see, back in ancient times, they would just build one civilization on the ruins of another civilization in many parts of the world back there. That's how they preserved civilizations. There was one place in Israel that we visited where there were seven cities built on the same exact spot. And you can stand there and talk about the different strata in the life of that community. Well, the Apostle Paul takes us through all the strata of his life, and he goes to the heart of it all when he says in the Scripture, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, Paul's life change came, and there was, when there came a great surrender in his life, And he yielded his life to the one who loved him and gave himself for him. And in that surrender, Paul experienced a kind of dying where the old self passed away and a new self had the stamp of Christ put on it. I think the Apostle Paul would have known what Bonhoeffer meant when he said, when Christ calls us to himself, he bids us come and die. Think about that. When Christ calls us to himself, he bids us come and die. And it is in that dying that comes to us so threatening this morning in many, many lives. And we find ourselves having difficulty of surrendering to the point where the old self passes away and the new self becomes a living reality. But then the Apostle Paul informs us how you and I can receive the faith that will enable you and me to make that kind of surrender. And he tells us that new life is all bound up in our faith in the death of Christ as it centers on the cross. That's why Paul said, I have been crucified, yet I live. It's all about dying and being raised again. And so the Apostle Paul directs us, first of all this morning, he calls our attention to the wonder of what God did in Christ. The wonder of what God did in Christ. He said, it was the Father's plan that through the gift of his Son, you and I might be saved from our sins. Many, many years ago, I heard a very well-known preacher. He said that he really could not preach on the text John 3.16. Know that text? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This man said he had just never reached the place of maturity in his life where he knew how to handle that text. Well, I was a young pastor in those days. I thought to myself, well, I preached on that text, and I preached there, and I've handled that text. And I did that back when I was in my early 30s. I did not have the slightest idea in those days of the enormity of what I was preaching on. And I think this morning, if we all had the insight that pastor had, we might all deal with that text with a little more care than we do. Maybe, maybe we begin to understand that text just a little better when you and I become parents. I heard a guy telling once, about some of the things that happened to his children when they were all growing up. And as parents know, for every parent, that's an endless event in their lives, things that happened. 
He talked about his oldest child, who was a girl, and of an experience in her life that happened before she could even walk. Back in those days, they had one of those little walking contraptions that looked kind of like a a spider. Anybody ever see one of those things? And she could get around in that thing because it had wheels on it, and she could just go anywhere in the house that she wanted to. And uh, one day, her mother was about getting was getting ready to uh, fry some chicken, and, and she put the electric frying pan on the counter and poured some oil into that frying pan, and that oil was heating up, and just about that time, Dad was coming home from work. And, and as he walked in the door, he saw his little daughter, Beth, as she flashed into the kitchen on that little spider thing on wheels. And before anybody could stop her, she took hold of that cord that was connected to the skillet. And she jerked that skillet so that all of that oil came cascading down on her from her head to her feet. And in that dad and mom's mind, they could see that oil in midair, but they could not get there fast enough to stop it. Now, all those years later, since that happened, he said, I I can still see that sheet of oil coming down all over that child of ours, and we were helpless to stop it. We couldn't do it. It's like a still picture fixed in our minds forever. Because, you see, only a parent can understand how they felt in that second when they were helpless to help. Well, they wrapped her up in one of his shirts. They took that grease-covered body to the local hospital, and they discovered, much to their relief, that the oil was not yet hot enough to do any permanent damage to the little girl. Now, when I think about God, when I think about God not withholding his son with all the power of the universe at his disposal, To see sinners take his only begotten son and nail that son to a cross. For God just to stand by with all the power and all the ability that he had, though the son hid itself in shame what was happening to God's only son. When I think about the enormity of all of that, I can understand a little more clearly how the apostle Paul could surrender to that kind of love. That God so loved the world that he gave. Then again, I think Paul helps us understand that a bit more. It was not just God's will that his son be bruised. But secondly, we're dealing with the choice of a willing Savior. The choice of a willing Savior. Paul says, he loved me and he gave himself for me. Can I remind us this morning, Jesus was not bound by God's will so that he could resist that will. He was not that he had to do that for us. Certainly, he prayed through bloody sweat. He, He wanted to do the will of the Father, but he was not bound. Jesus had a choice in the matter. If Jesus had not had a choice, then Gethsemane, with all that terrible agony there, became a cruel mockery for us. But we know that Jesus had a choice. 
He himself said he could have called legions of angels to rescue him. He also said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. So Jesus was a willing Savior. It was not that he had to, but that he wanted to do that. He wanted it for you, and he wanted it for me and for the world. No wonder we sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love. And shed his blood for Adam's race. Amazing love. That's what he did for you and me. And then Paul tells us here the experience that was intensely personal. An experience intensely personal. And folks, until the experience with Christ becomes personal, it's not real. Until that experience with Jesus Christ becomes personal to you, it is not real. If you and I, we don't, we don't experience Jesus just in general. We experience him in a personal way. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. Now, I know in the, in, in the culture in which we live, there are a lot of people today that that's a stumbling point for them. They would say, well, you know, God God just kind of died for everybody there. And he did die for everybody, but he also died for each one of us this morning. If Jesus were only a man, that really doesn't make much sense. For how could he die for me living here in the 21st century? But if Jesus is God on that cross, then the ground around Calvary was crowded that day because he saw my face. And he saw your face. And Jesus died for you. And Jesus died for me. He died for all people of all times. But he died to bless us personally in our lives. And until you and I understand that, the cross has no meaning. And it has no power to compel us to surrender to that kind of love. It was John Wesley John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, the Methodist church. Before John Wesley came to personally know Jesus Christ, he could say to his Moravian friends, well, I believe Jesus Christ died for the whole world. But, but when they pressed him further, John Wesley could not say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. But then Wesley had that marvelous experience at Aldersgate. And then he could shout for the whole world, he has forgiven my sin and taken away my sin. So let me stop and ask you this morning. Can you say that? Can you say that? Can you say without any hesitation this morning, I know because of the cross of Jesus Christ, he has not just shed his blood for the world out there, but I know Jesus Christ has forgiven my sins and all of my past has been erased. And I know Jesus Christ lives in my heart. I I know that. And in grace and in mercy, I am forgiven. Do you know that today? A blessed experience. He provides for us. The Apostle Paul says, He loved me and He gave Himself for me. You see, if Jesus Christ simply died to show us how much He loved us, 
that, that just kind of a sentimental death really has no point. We believe that Jesus Christ died in our place. We believe he died in our stead. We believe he died our death, that you and I can experience new life in him. He took our transgressions. He took our sins. He became a curse for us that we might not have to bear the curse ourselves. That's what Jesus Christ did. Now, if that death, if that was just sort of a sentimental kind of a thing, that would be kind of like a man walking down a river bank who sees someone in the water going down for the third time, kind of drowning, and he would say to that man, you know, I love you so much that I'm going to jump in here and drown with you so I can show you how much I can love you. Well, we might say, well, that's really sweet or dumb, however we want to think about that. So wonderful for that man to do that, but it doesn't do a thing for the drowning man. And Jesus did not just die on that cross to show us that he loved us. As wonderful as that is, he became a substitute and he died for us. And it is in that faith that Paul's life was transformed and permeated every part of his being until the apostle Paul could say, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me, folks. There's power to transform through the cross of Jesus Christ. A man by the name of Asa Chandler got a syrup from a, man, from a man by the name of Dr. Pemberton in 1866. Got that in the southern town of Columbus, Georgia. Asa Chandler went to his basement in Atlanta and he began to develop that syrup. And today we, it's known all over the world as Coca-Cola. Some people will tell us today that, that, that Chandler built Atlanta on Coke. The kind you drink, not the kind you snort, okay? Get that straight. And if you've ever been around Emory University in Atlanta, some people might say you are attending Coke University. Chandler gave so much money in his day to the Methodist Church that he built a great university and became one of the greatest philanthropists in, that ever lived. Someone has said, Atlanta was really started on Candler money. Asa Candler had a brother, and both of them were great churchmen. That brother became a Methodist bishop, and the school of theology at, 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 at uh, Emory University is called the Candler School of Theology. But Asa Candler had one great heartache. His only son, Asa Jr., was an out-of-control alcoholic. He was just burning up his life, throwing it away. He was literally drinking himself to death, unable to deal with the problem of alcohol. Asa Jr. had a chauffeur. He had all the money in the world, but that, that really wasn't doing him any good. He would have his driver drive him over to his uncle, the bishop, and, and his uncle would tell him again and again how much God loved him and wanted to do for him and of Christ's ability to transform his life. Finally, finally one day Asa Jr. came home to his wife. He said to her, all these years, my uncle has been telling me about Jesus and about his love. He said to her, 
I'm now so sick of myself. I'm ready to trust Jesus to see if I can really have a new self. I'm ready to surrender my life to him. And on that day, Asa Jr. knelt in his kitchen and he tried and he gave his life. And he said, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for all of my sins. I invite you to come into my life. I want you to live your life in me. I surrender all. And when he made that surrender, when he came to that place of surrender there, there there was a surge of new strength that came there, coming into his life and coming into his soul, and it cleaned him up, and it empowered him. So he asked his wife, where's my whiskey bottle? He always had whiskey around the house. She brought him one. He took that whiskey bottle, he, he, he tied a ribbon and a bow around the cork on the top of that bottle, and he set it on the counter. And until the day that he died, that ribbon stayed there. That bottle was never opened. And Asa Jr. became one of the greatest churchmen in all of the southeastern part of the United States. Folks, there was power in that faith, power to clean us up, clean us up on the inside and the outside because of Christ. I don't know about you. But I look back on some of the things I've done in my life, and I'm absolutely ashamed of myself. I'm not one of those people who believe that all shame is bad. Sometimes it's good to have a little shame. The fact of the matter is we have people in our day who don't even know how to blush. And when you can't blush anymore, you're in deep trouble. And when you can no longer feel shame you're in real trouble. Shame can be something good, but sometimes, sometimes shame can get out of hand and shame can be bad. Sometimes shame can become like a stain that has been so long that it gets way down into your soul. And then people start thinking, you know, I I didn't just make a mistake. But I am a mistake. And when you start thinking you are a mistake, then you're in really big trouble. The Apostle Paul ought to have been ashamed. He was responsible for the death of Stephen there in the Acts chapter. And Paul persecuted the church. But there was a glorious hallelujah day after Paul surrendered to Jesus Christ because of what God's grace did in his heart. And Paul could then say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Who is to condemn seeing that in Jesus he is the one that justified? You see, what wonder? What joy, what peace, what delight that comes to you and me in our life when, like the Apostle Paul, we open our hearts and we surrender to Jesus Christ and we know the joy of sins forgiven and the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit. Then we can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me ask you today, do you know that kind of joy in your life? 
Do you know the freedom and the joy of the abiding presence of God that dwells way down deep? Can you share that same faith to people around you that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because of what Christ has done on the cross? And can you say to people, you can start over There can be a bright future. God has a plan for you. And you begin the very moment that it starts with surrendering all to Christ. It's what I've said to you. It's what I've said to people every place I preach. We live in what I call hands down living. Palms down. Holding on to nothing. But giving it all to Christ. That's the way to live. And that's why Paul could say, I'm not living. But Christ lives in me. It's cross-centered living. That's what he wants. That's why he died. That's what he offers you and me to come to him, surrender to him, and begin to live Christ-filled living. Would you bow with me for a moment? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there. By faith I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. The old gospel writer wrote it so well. Let me just ask you, have you come to that place of surrender? Have you come in your life where you just turned palms down and given your life to Jesus Christ? Do you know this morning without a shadow of a doubt My sins are forgiven. I I know my past. I know where I was. I know what I did. But I know that Jesus Christ has become personal to me and has changed my life by his grace. And have you given him everything so that God's Holy Spirit fills you with his fullness? And you know what it is to live the Spirit-filled life because of what the cross And the Christ of the cross has done for you. I'm not going to ask you to come to the altar this morning. But with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, God's Holy Spirit can come right where you are seated in this sanctuary and touch your heart. And if you've given him all, if if you know what I've been talking about this morning, give him thanks. If you don't, Open your heart and allow him in. Jesus, we thank you today. Thank you for what you did on that cross, that you loved us so much, that you demonstrated your love by giving your very self, that we might know what it is personally, individually, every person here today, to know that our sins are forgiven, that our past is erased, that you've come into our lives. It's not us who lives, but you live in us. How grateful we are today for that. And I pray all across this sanctuary this morning, every person that is here might, without a question in their minds or a doubt in their hearts, they might know today that their sins are forgiven, that Jesus Christ is real in their lives because of what you've done. And they begin and know today cross-centered, Christ-centered living because that's the way to joy and that's the way to peace 
That's the way to live in these days. And we thank you for it. So, Spirit of God, move around this place today. Help those of us who know what it is to have our sins forgiven. Help us to rejoice anew. Some of us came to you years ago, Lord, and and we just kind of live day by day, and we know we're a Christian, but would you somehow remind us anew of the joy and what a delight it is to be forgiven? And for someone who might have opened his or her heart this morning, come in anew and refresh their hearts with your presence and your forgiveness and center us on the cross and fill us with your Spirit is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Aren't you glad for what Jesus did? That he died on the cross for you, me, every one of us. And you and I can say with the Apostle Paul, it's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. That's what happened because of the cross. Would you stand with me? Now may the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of God, and the intimate fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with us right now, Lord, as we go from this place and as we go through this week, demonstrating through our lives we have been transformed by your grace and living Christ-centered, cross-centered lives. May you glory through us In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, and have a great week. Pastor.